I just took your directory. Go ahead and have your Bibles open to Ezekiel 37. That's where we're going to be at today. Now, we have gone from Genesis 1, and now we're in Ezekiel 37, and we're going all the way to Revelation. We started in a garden, and we're going to a city. We started with two people made in the image of God to where the entire world would be dwelt by image bearers of God. That's where we're going Um, And so, uh, every week now we're recapping the gospel story. We're going from Genesis, and then last week was Isaiah 53. So, we're just going to say what the gospel story is so far um, as we have gone through it. And so, what we have done, and I think there's a slide up here. um, I I decided that it would be helpful, and it was funny because I was, well, anyways, you don't need to know. So, there's words up here. Um, My wife always says I give too much information at times, so... Uh, so I, I've simply given words uh, to give direction, um, to help you, and then also I would encourage you to keep these words, especially by the time we get done with the entire gospel journey, um, keeping these words with you so you can be able to walk through with someone the entire gospel story. And so uh, with that, how about we begin? Uh, so where do we begin in the Bibles? And so I have the, the words as cues. We begin with God. We have a triune God. See? See, the words help. Um, we begin with a triune God, and he does what? He creates. He creates everything, and we saw that everything he does is for his glory. And so what does he create? <laughs> what was that? He creates man in his image, um, and man is to be in his image, to be fruitful, and to go fill the entire world, that the, earth, that the world would be full of image bearers. Um, but that doesn't happen because there's what? Sin. <laughs> I love Josh. Um, there's sin, and so we rebel against God, right? We've rebelled against God, and therefore we are removed from the garden. But before we're removed from the garden, which represents the presence and the rule of God, what does God do? He gives a promise. Do you remember what that promise is? Serpent crusher. See, it's fun. It's a serpent crusher. It's a fun promise. That one day he will send from the seed of a woman one who will crush the head of the serpent. Um, and then as we progress through the story, we go, how is he going to do this? And he does it by choosing Abraham, who from Abraham he's going to make a people for his own possession, and he will bless them, that they would be a blessing to all peoples. Um, and then we see from this, from this nation, there is going to be a what? A king. But what kind of king? A lion king. A lion from the tribe of Judah is going to come. So we see a king is going to come, um, and so we see it's from Abraham, from Judah, and then where does this, um, well, actually, before we get to that, but we have a problem. Um, all of God's people need to be redeemed out of Egypt. They need to be brought into God's possession. And so how does God bring a people out of Egypt? 
Passover, which is the substitutionary lamb, where a lamb is killed so that the people of Egypt or the people of Israel would be redeemed out of Egypt, but all of Egypt suffers the wrath of God because they did not have a substitutionary sacrifice. And then God later says from David, he is going to have what? David's son will build him a house. And we understand that house to be uh, the church that Jesus is the foundation of. And we go, well, well how is, is, are we going to have a righteous king who leads a people to follow God? Well, a lamb didn't quite do it, right? The Old Testament lamb didn't work because we had to keep making sacrifices. So if we're going to be perfectly redeemed, so we no longer need any sacrifices, we need a what? We need the suffering servant who becomes the perfect substitutionary sacrifice so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have peace with God. And so that's where we've gone. Um, last week, we see Jesus comes as the substitutionary sacrifice. He went to the cross, uh, pays the penalty for our, pen, our, our, pen, our sins so we can spend eternity with him forever. And so Isaiah 53 focused on what Jesus did at the cross. That's kind of the focus there. He takes our sins, and then he gives us his righteousness. Um, so today, Ezekiel 37 is, if, is going to like look at the cross, but at a different angle. So Isaiah 53 says, this is what Jesus did for us at the cross. And now Ezekiel 37 is going to say, um, what happens to us? What does it look like because of what Jesus did at the cross? So that's what we're going to be looking at today is really the result of what it means, Jesus being our substitutionary sacrifice. And so I want to go ahead and encourage you. We're going to stand as we read Ezekiel chapter 37. And we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel speaking. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these, to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You all may be seated. Let me pray. Father, give us wisdom today as we look at your text. 
God, help us to see what happens because of the cross. Help us to see the grace that you lavishly pour out, that you take us from spiritually dead, dry bones, to become spiritually alive in you. God, give us wisdom today. Help us to see that. Fill us with joy as we better understand what you have done for us and fill us with boldness that we would go and tell others about your amazing gospel. In your name, Jesus, amen. Um, So let me give a little breakdown of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is an amazing Old Testament book. Um, It's basically three sections. Chapters 1 through 25, judgment. Judgment on Israel. Chapters 26 through 32 is judgment on the nations. And chapters 33 through 48 uh, focus on restoration of God's people. And so uh, the judgment chapters, though, they're dark. I mean, they're dark, dark, dark chapters. When you're reading them, you're kind of like, it can't get worse, can it? And then you go to the next chapter, you're like, ah, it did. It got worse. Um, So what I want to do is I just want to read a section from chapter 7. And I think this is going to be up on the slides. And so just follow along. We're just going to do 10 verses. And just think about why God is doing what he's doing. And focus on the words that he gives. I mean, these are not pretty, flowery words that he gives. So here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. And you, O son of man, say, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord." Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold, the day, behold, it comes. Your doom has come, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Who puts that on their coffee cup? (laughs) You know, I mean, we all wear our t-shirts and all coffee cups. Nowhere has I seen doom has come, it's come, it's come upon you. I mean, these are dark verses. It just gives you the chills as you read them. And and really, these chapters all around there are just like that. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Repeatedly, we hear the words doom and end. So why? Why is God being so severe with his people? It's because they haven't obeyed him. There's these abominations all in their midst, which it's these false gods that they've worshipped. They're to worship God, and they have a temple which represents God and His presence, but rather than only worshiping God, they set up all these other gods, and they set them up on the mountains, they set them up on the hills, so they would go up to them, and they would worship them, just like the other nations do. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 6 of Ezekiel, we're told that Israel acts worse 
than the pagan nations around them. Now just imagine that. We have God's people. They have God's word. And their sin is more severe than that of the other nations. And so because of that, God is going to remove his presence from them. And Ezekiel is this amazing book where we see the temple of God and God begins to move away from the temple. He actually takes his presence from his people. And then at the end of the book, we see how he comes back and dwells with his people. And we'll look at that in a few moments. So just like Adam and Eve were removed from the presence of God because they sinned, so God's going to remove his, remove his presence from his people. God doesn't dwell with a sinful people. He's holy, he's righteous, he lives only with those who are holy and righteous, which we looked at last week. And the only way that comes about is because of Jesus at the cross. Now then, from the New Testament, as we're reading this, and even from the Old Testament, we would know Jesus cannot, or God cannot completely obliterate his people, can he? I mean, he can't, right? After all, if he completely destroys his people without any hope, that would void all the promises. Remember the promises? Promise of a serpent crusher. Where's that one found? Do you remember? Genesis 3. Promise that he would, from the line of Abraham, create an entire people for his own possession that would be a blessing to all nations. Where does that one come from? Genesis 12. Um, what about the one where Jesus or God is going to bless David with a son so that he will create a house for him? There's a promise again that God makes. This will happen. Where does that one come? Second Samuel. Remember, 1 Samuel is about Saul. 2 Samuel is about David. Easy way to kind of remember that. 2 Samuel 7. Or what about the promise, I'm going to send a suffering servant who will take your sins. Where does that one come from? Isaiah 53. So he's made these promises all prior to what's happening now in Ezekiel. So as we're reading this, we need to go, wow, this is severe. But in our minds, as the readers, we're to have, but wait, there's these promises. If God doesn't fulfill these promises, then He's not faithful, He's not true, He's not steadfast. And we could very well come to the conclusion that He's not strong enough to save His people from the pagan nations around them. And if we come to that conclusion, then we would say this God is very much just the same as any tribal God. Some are strong, some are weak. There's always one stronger though, right? Well, that's what we can come to the conclusion of. So we know that this can't be the end, but God is pouring out judgment. And then in chapter 33, he's going to shift gears and begin moving from destruction to restoration. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Um, I want to read one more passage to you. And this is in chapter 36. And I want you to just turn in your Bibles there. I'm big into writing in my Bibles. I think it's great. I think you should color in them, draw in them, use every type of thing imaginable. Um, but I want to encourage you, as we go through these verses, if you have a pen, and if you don't mind, um, put little triangles over the word I. Just put it over there. And just triangle kind of represents Trinity, represents God. And just see how many times you do that and be overwhelmed with what God is going to do in this passage. So this is Ezekiel 36, and we're just going to read verses 22 through 28. This is, this is a neat passage. I like this one. It's nothing like the first one. It's nothing like the first passage. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not 
for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give to you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And an amazing passage there. I mean, it's totally different than the doom, the end has come upon you. I mean, now we have restoration, hope. So why is God going to restore Israel? It's to vindicate his holy name. Verse 23 is what we saw. Now just pause for a moment. Do you get that? Like God's not saving Israel because they deserve to be saved. He's not saving Israel because he's like, oh, it's Tuesday. I should go save Israel. Like it has nothing to do with that. He's saying it's all about his glory. Remember, Genesis 1, thing we looked at. Everything God does is for his glory and to display his glory. That's every action that God takes is always for his glory. And so here's a perfect example of this. God is going to save his people for his glory. Now there's an important thing to notice here. God has intertwined his glory with the fate of his people. His people, through their actions, have profaned his name. Therefore, by his actions, he will save his people and transform them in order to vindicate his holy name. Look at verse 23. If you go back, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which is profaned among the nations because of you. So because of Israel, they have profaned God's name. So God has intertwined his glory with his people. They have profaned it. So now he says... Um, he says, and which you have profaned, and the nations will know that I am Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness. So what he's going to do, you've profaned it, so now he's going to change you, so that through you his holiness would be vindicated. This is amazing. Now this is, it's also really crazy and ridiculous for us to think about this. Now, would you ever want to tie your glory, your reputation, to someone else? That's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, uh, for example, can you make someone do anything? Can you force them to do things that maybe they don't even want to do? I mean, you could try to pay them a lot, and maybe they'll do it, but we can't force anyone to do anything. Like, I, I can't make you go do anything. Now, there are examples where I can make people do things. I have kids. It's a glorious thing. Um, now, I can make my kids big windstorm, so I can, I, probably today, I'll have my kids go in the backyard, and I will make them pick up pine cones. That's their job. They will pick up the pine cones that are in the grass, and they will rake all those up. Now, can I, can I control their emotions, though? I'll say, now, kids, I want you to go out with joy and pick up the pine cones, and they will go, stupid pine cone, stupid pine cone. 
I, I can force them to do what I want, but I can't actually make them love doing pinecone duty, can I? And maybe you do, and if you do, please come over. Um, but this is where God is different. See, we're limited in our control. I, I can control certain things. I can make my kids do things, but even there, I'm very limited. But God's very different from us. He's not limited. He has complete and absolute power and sovereignty. And so what we see here is that what God is going to do, he's going to transform this people. Give them new hearts and a new spirit so we would not only do what he says, but we would love to do what he says. We would enjoy worshiping him. I mean, this is total transformation is what we're looking at here. And really, we're looking at what Jesus did at the cross. Isaiah 53, he comes to the cross to take our sins. And what we're reading here in Ezekiel 36 and now 37 is in, in a second is that when Jesus takes our sins and makes us new, this newness is a complete transformation of heart, mind, and soul. That now we desire the things that God desires. We love the things that he loves. So how is God going to do this? We have a, we have a, defi- a divided, defeated, and despondent people. I mean, just imagine you're... You're, you're, among Ezekiel, you're among the listeners of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's coming and saying, this is what God's going to do. And you're just looking, look, we're in captivity now. We're in exile. This, how? I mean, really? And so now, we're going, now Ezekiel's going to give them this vision that God has given him that they would see how this is going to take place. And, and so instead of reading the text again, um, I want to show a video. This is on YouTube. Um, maybe get the lights too so it can show a little bit easier. But this is a fun video that kind of uh, shows what this text is about. Maybe lights, maybe not. I don't know. It's dramatic pause. You feel the tension rising? The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the voice of the Lord. I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, and say to it, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. 
I love that video. I just think it's neat. I mean, kind of shows what it looks like. Who knows what the vision actually looked like, but it might have been something like that. Um, bones come to life. So as we look at this, um, we see a couple things. We see the condition of these bones. They're, expo- they're exposed and they're very dry. Those are two things that, that are important to understand. The very dry reveals the total decay and hopelessness of God's people. They're not kind of dead. They're totally dead. And they've been dead. They're, they're dried out. And the fact that they're exposed reveals that they've broken covenant with God. They have not kept the covenant with God. In Deuteronomy 28, this is what God says. If you disobey me, your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The idea is you're just going to be strewn out among the countryside, and animals are going to eat you until there's only bones that are left, which is the valley of dry bones. Because they've not kept covenant, they're dead people. They're spiritually, spiritually dead. Now before we go, there's something like, doesn't that sound familiar though to the New Testament description of all humanity? See, apart from God's grace, does not the Bible say that we're all spiritually dead? Apart from God's grace, are we not all condemned under his wrath? Have None of us have kept his covenant. None of us have loved him like he is said to. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It says you're dead. Romans 3, now this is kind of a long passage, verses 10 through 18. Just listen to what God, how he describes you and me. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does that sound like to you? Dry bones. Completely, absolutely dead. No fear of God. There's no right knowing of God among the people of the world apart from the grace of God. And the point is, we're all spiritually dead. And just, I think that's something that as Christians we neglect to think about at times. We need to remember, we are spiritually dead apart from the grace of God. And really, our our lives look no better than a heap of dry, exposed bones. None of us are able to earn the love of God, the grace of God, and all of us deserve his wrath. And so then then what Ezekiel does is as he's giving this message to those in exile, he says, I've been given this vision, God's going to do something. I know it looks hopeless, but God's going to do something. And so in verse 3, God asks Ezekiel a question, can these bones live? Now honestly, think about it. This is like going to the cemetery and saying, okay, are we going to see people crawling out of the ground? I mean, could you imagine me just taking Ben there later, my little son? Hey, Ben, do you think there's going to be people coming out of the ground right now? Creepy if they did. I hope they don't. I mean, the obvious answer is no, right? The obvious answer is no. It's not, well, of course they can. It's no. But Ezekiel seems to think God's doing something in here, so he just says, oh, Lord God, you know. It's kind of like he just turns the question back. What do you think, God? I mean, you know, that's always a good question to do with God. 
I, I take your opinion. Um, now, the word live, it's pretty key. It applies, it appears six times in this passage. The point is, this passage is all about life. It's all about life. And not just any life, but life that God gives. So Ezekiel prophesies twice. First, he does to the dead bones. And when he does, amazingly, muscle, skin, ligaments, all that stuff comes together. Probably look just like the video. Would be cool if it did. I have no idea. Um, but creepy now, because now we have just a bunch of dead corpses. I mean, honestly, it's not a lot better, but, but better. Um, but second time, Ezekiel then prophesies to the breath. Now, the word breath, wind, and spirit, all the same word in Hebrew. Now, it's interpreted different times, but it all means the same thing. And we see because of this breath, because of the spirit coming upon these spiritually dead people, they become alive and they form a great army. Remember in Genesis 1, what does the spirit do? It hovers over creation that what? It would bring order and life would come about. In the New Testament, we read that the only way we come to life is through the work of the Spirit in us. And so here we have this beautiful picture of what happens when the Spirit comes. And so what's the point of Ezekiel prophesying twice? Um, life only comes from God's Word and His power, His Spirit. That's the only way. Life comes from the Word and His power, which power comes from the Spirit. We see that the Spirit always works through the Word. Do you know that? The Spirit always works through the Word of God. We see that all throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it becomes even more clear. Um, this means if unbelievers are going to come to know Jesus, they have to hear the Word of God, right? They have to hear the Word of God. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. They have to hear the Word of God. They need to know the Gospel. The only way an unbeliever comes to know Jesus, and what has to happen? The power of the Spirit must bring them to life. See, when we talk with unbelievers, we're not just giving them information. The reason an unbeliever is an unbeliever is not because they just don't know as much as we do. The Pharisees had like the entire Old Testament memorized, they knew everything, and yet they were spiritually dead. I think Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Remember that? They're spiritually dead. So it's not knowledge that people need. What do they need? The Word of God and the power of the Spirit to come upon them. Which means when we're sharing the Gospel, give the Word and pray. Be praying that God makes this Word a reality in their life. Be praying for them. They need the power of God to make them alive. It's not that the Word's not sufficient. It's that the Word and the Spirit must go together. Now, if you're an unbeliever, we need to learn something here too. Or if you're a believer, we need to learn something here too. When we study God's Word, how do we study it? Do we just read? You know, read through and then we get done, close it. All right, good to go. I got my God today. Is that what we do? Think about it. How do you do it? How do you study? Do you spend at least some time before you open the Word of God saying, God, give me wisdom, pour out your grace as I read your Word. Give me understanding. And then as you close it, God, help apply this truth to my soul. 
Make me new. Make me more like your son Jesus. How much are you dependent upon God as you read his word? Life comes from the word and the spirit. And if we're going to continually be made more like Jesus, it takes place through the word and the spirit. I just want to encourage you, as you read the Bible, God loves to work through his word. But let's depend upon him. So first thing we see is life only comes from God's word and his power. And of course, when I'm saying power, I'm meaning and the spirit of God. Number two, life only comes from God's grace. Is there anything about a dead pile of bones that says, save me? Is there anything about a dead pile of bones that says, I am deserving? No. Rather, what we see is that totally undeserving. In fact, the reason they are a dead pile of bones is because they don't love God. So what we see is that God, despite our unworthiness, says, I'm going to make you alive. How? Isaiah 53. Sins the suffering servant, our substitutionary sacrifice. What we see, number three, life only comes from God's zeal for his glory. Remember, why is God doing any of this? Why is God making any of us new in his image? For his glory. The reason God created us is to be image bearers of him, to glorify him. The reason he saves us is because we don't glorify him, but he didn't abandon his purpose, so now he's saying, I'm going to save you that you would glorify me. And what we see is that he does this, and when he does this, he gives us a new heart, a new spirit, that we would obey him and we would love obeying him. Because God has tied our fate to his glory, he, um, he will go to great means to vindicate his name. How far? As far as sending his son and crushing him at the cross. That's how much God pursues his glory. He's willing to send his son and kill him on the cross, taking all of our sin so that we could be saved. That's how much he pursues his glory. So when we look at the cross, don't immediately go, that's how much God loves me. That's how much God loves himself. You see that? Pursuit of his glory. And because he's God, should he pursue anything else? Should he make much of anything else other than his glory? Should rather you or me be the thing of his highest um, focus? That'd be weird. A part of his creation be the most valued piece to him? No. His glory is most valuable. And he does love us. And that's why he's tied us to his glory. And so at the cross, God displays his justice. This is where God is able to not pour his wrath upon you and me because he sends his son so that his son would receive the wrath that you and I deserve. So his son would suffer our punishment, and you and I, by faith in Jesus, would be, given, uh, would be given peace. We would be made new. Remember that whole new creation thing we read about in the New Testament? It's right here in Ezekiel. New heart, new spirit, new mind. Become transformed new creations. It's all because of the cross that this is possible. 
So that's what, amen, indeed. That's what Ezekiel 37 is looking forward to. Saying, God's going to do a great act and make us alive. We say, when or how? Answer for that we see because we're at the other side of the cross as we say he did it at the cross. Ezekiel 37 is pointing to the cross. Isaiah 53 shows why Jesus goes to the cross. Ezekiel 37 shows what happens to us because of the cross. We become new creations. So what do we do now? This is what I began to wrestle with as I read this. Okay, God's grace makes us spiritually alive. In chapter 37, it shows that means that we've given new heart, new desires. So now we seek to love God and obey God. But what does that look like? What does that look like that God's made us new? We've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. What does that look like? That's what I began wrestling with as I read this. I was like, how am I going? What does this mean for me now? In verse 10, we're told that this dead pile of bones has become an exceedingly great army. An exceedingly great army. What does that mean? What's that supposed to communicate to us? Are we to think that, wow, I was dead, now I'm alive, look how strong I am, I'm a soldier? Is the point to now focus on us? Is maybe the point to say, man, maybe we need to uh, start some holy wars, maybe do some crusades? I think we saw that in history, that didn't work out so well, did it? I don't think we could validate that anywhere in the New Testament. So what's this idea that now we're this strong army? Is that pointing to us? What's that pointing to? If we keep reading, we would go to chapters 38 and 39. And in these chapters, we read about a great army coming from Magog. And this great army led by Gog is going to come and is going to attack the people of God. And it wants to destroy them. But then we read that God says, I will bring about a great earthquake and pestilence and hailstones. Really, all the uh, curses that went upon Israel. He's now saying, I'm going to take all these curses. I'm going to pour them on this army. In chapter 39, verse 7, God says, And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel and will, let, and will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. What he's saying is this army wants to come defeat my people. I will crush this army so that everyone knows my people serve the one true God and there is no other God. And then if we read chapter 39, verse 5, we see that God's going to so destroy this army that the countryside's going to be littered with their bodies and their bones will be exposed. And he's going to say, let the wild beasts and the birds come and eat their flesh. The very picture, we have Israel despondent, dry bones, is now the picture of all humanity apart from the grace of God. So what we have here, so what's this point? God promises to protect and overcome, protect his people and overcome any force that tries to attack them. In fact, we read about this army in Revelation. You remember that? Revelation 20. So most likely, this army led by Gog, um, God, G-O-G, not G-O-D, uh, most likely refers to those who will persecute the church throughout the entire church age. And so we have this army force who, who wants to persecute the church, but do we need to fear? Do we need to, wow, we're going to be persecuted? Oh no, or what if they overcome us? What if they defeat us? 
No, because God has now promised to overcome them. And why do we know He'll do it? For His glory. For His glory. God will persevere His people in the midst of tribulation and suffering and trials so His glory is made known. Do you see how good it is that our fate is tied to His glory? When we come to believe in Him and He says, my glory is intertwined with you, there's hope in there. There's great hope knowing that God will not let anything overcome us. So I think Ezekiel is giving this imagery of an army not to point to our strength. And I don't think it's to say now we're an army that fights sin. Although we could see like in Romans 8.13 we're to kill sin and we are to hate sin and fight against it. I don't think that's the point. Um, I think the point is that we would understand now how bold we are because of what God has done for us. How strong we are in God because of what God has done for us. And this is what we read in the New Testament, right? Romans 3, we're all hopeless, we're all under the wrath of God. As we continue in the book of Romans, we see that because of the work of Jesus, we're saved, made new, given His Spirit. And then we read this in Romans 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God makes us alive, nothing can overcome us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I was thinking about this earlier. It's like God has placed in His invincible love around us that nothing can overcome His people. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to be martyrs. This doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. We clearly see throughout history that Christians will die for their faith, right? But when the person comes and puts a gun to your head and says, deny Jesus or die, you can say, pull the trigger. Because he has not denied me and I will not deny him. And if you do pull that trigger, that will only quicken my presence into his very presence. So I have nothing to fear. That's the point of Romans 8. That's the point of Ezekiel 37. We become this army and God will overcome anyone who attacks us. It's not that we don't die or suffer. It's that we will never be separated from Him. Isn't that good news? And why? Because God will not let His holy name be profaned. It's all about His holiness. So how do we apply this truth? Let me just give, I think, four ways, five ways. Um, I think it makes us bold. This is the th- when I just got done reading and thinking about it, it just makes us bold. Because of what God has done is, what do we need to fear? So we should be bold in our worship. We praise Him in the morning, in the noontime, in the evening. Everything we do should be worship. And we shouldn't feel weird when we tell people, no, I'm not going to do that. Because I just don't believe that's right, whatever that is. Or I'm not going to watch that. Or I'm not going to participate in that. We don't have to worry about whatever they might call us. We say, look, I worship God in everything. And that, I I don't think my my Heavenly Father would want me to do that. I don't see how that brings worship to God. So I'm I'm not going to do that. We don't have to be fearful about that. We don't need to hide our worship of God. 
I think it makes us bold in prayer. This is what prayer is. Prayer is actively trusting in God to act for his glory. That's what prayer is, right? We're actively trusting in God to act for his glory. It's a means of declaring our need for God, saying, God, we need you to work for your glory. So let's be bold and dependent upon prayer. The other day I go to the gym, and gym is where God seems to bring amazing witnessing opportunities. Or very interesting ones, I guess I should say. So I go, and there's this guy, and we have this conversation. And, I mean, we talk about the gospel, we talk about the church, we talk about God, and we talk about a whole lot of other things. And when I leave, I'm just sitting there, I'm scratching my head going, I have no idea how to talk to this guy. Um, He's kind of one of those that he changes subjects every few seconds, so you can't really ever stay on track on anything. Um, And he just doesn't want to believe the gospel. He just doesn't want to believe. And so he's willing to believe some very far-fetched things that would require a lot more faith than believing the gospel. Um, and I, I, I'm walking away, and I'm just scratching my head going, I, I don't even know what to say. And then Ezekiel 37 comes into my mind. And I'm like, he doesn't need me to try to reason him. He needs the work of God in his life. And so I just said, you know what? He's on the prayer list now, so I added him to my prayer list. I'm just going to start praying for him because I don't know what else to do. I'll still try to talk to him. I'll try to give the word because he needs the word. He needs the gospel. I'll try to do that as much as I can and where I can. I'm just going to pray. And I'm just going to pray that God would change him because I, I, I don't know how to actually reason with him. And I don't know if I can. So but that's not my role. My role is just to trust in God that he will work through his word, and so I'm just praying for the Spirit to work there. Doesn't that give us strength and boldness in evangelism? I mean, how many times do you walk away from trying to tell someone the gospel, and you're like, I don't know what to tell them? Just pray. God, just whatever I did say, whatever gospel got communicated, just water that a lot, and you make it grow. It should make us bold in our evangelism. It should make us bold in hoping for Christ's return. Do you think about Jesus' return? Do you think about it? As believers, we should be so convinced of Jesus' return that we're in anticipation of it. That's how all the New Testament writers write. They all believe that he's going to come back in any moment. And why do we know that Jesus is going to come back? Why do we know? For his glory. For his, he's going to come for his people who will glorify him. He's coming for his bride. He's coming to prove that he has overcome death and that we will live with him forever. So let us be in anticipation of that. Let's be bold in looking for the return of Christ. And lastly, let us be bold in obedience to the word. Obedience to the word. I think sometimes we read God's word and we just say, I can't do that. Or we think, man, maybe that's written for someone else. Surely God doesn't mean this to apply to me. Or we think that this idea of holiness is just too high up there. Do you ever feel like that? Like, you really want me to live like that? But God's given us His Word and His Spirit so we can know and have confidence that He's going to make us like Him, right? So when we read the Word and we go, I have no idea how you're going to make me more like you. It doesn't even make sense. And you can just simply say, but God... I know that you've given me your word and your spirit's going to work through your word and for your glory, you're going to make me more like your son, that I would glorify you more and more and more. So when we read our Bibles, pray for obedience. Pray. Pray that God would help you be obedient and you can be confident he will answer those prayers because he's determined to make you more like his son. 
for his glory. See, his glory is our hope. Do you see that? His glory. Because God makes the most of his glory, we have so much confidence in Jesus working in us and making us more like himself. So I want to just pray. Um, team's are going to come up, and we'll come and do questions in a few moments. So if you have any questions, feel free to text that uh, phone number. It's on uh, the bottom of your bulletin, so feel free to do that, and we'll do questions in a moment. But I just want to pray. I just want to pray for boldness. Father, we just come to you. And Lord, we have gone from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We have gone from very, very dry bones to be giving a new spirit, a new mind, a new heart that we would worship you and that we would love worshiping you. And God, you have promised that nothing will overcome us. God, I just pray. I pray that we would be full of boldness because of your word and your spirit working in us. God, fill us with such great joy because of that. And God, where there's doubts that come in our mind that, God, how can this be? Or can you really make me more like yourself? Or God, how can you help me overcome this sin? God, may we know that you will because you love your glory, God. And you've shown us how much you love your glory by sending your son Jesus to the cross. God, make us bold. And God, give us a heart for other people that we would tell them about you, knowing, God, you love to save people because it shows your glory all the more. So Father, I just pray, make us bold in sharing the gospel. And may we pray, may we pray and depend upon you that you would act for your glory and save them. God, I even pray for this year in 2016 that, Lord, we would see growth here in this church New growth, people who are coming to know you for the first time. Lord, we just pray that you would save our friends and our family members, our co-workers. Save them because, because we're trusting in you to work powerfully. And we're being bold and sharing your word, knowing that you save, knowing that you save. Father, we love you so much. In your name, Jesus, amen. A couple of questions. If our Creator is perfect, and if Christ's sacrifice was always the plan, is it accurate to say we were designed to be sinful, that we would depend upon Christ? Um, good question. Really good. Um, it is in the original plan that we would always worship God through Jesus Christ. That is the original plan. You read that in Romans 13, Revelation 13. There's a book that was written before eternity, and the name of the book is The Lamb That Was Slain. So before God ever created, there was a book and all the names written in it are those who are going to worship God through the lamb that was slain. But was the design that we'd be sinful as if God wants us to be sinful? No. Never do we have God saying, I want you to be sinful. We were designed in his image, thus meaning we were designed to glorify him. Could we say God did purpose that there would be sin? Um, I think we could go there, uh, but not that we were then designed to sin. Um, but that gets... It gets to the wills of God, and there's, yeah, that, those are big questions, um, but yes, it has always been in the plan of God that we would worship God through Jesus Christ. Um, 
If God calls us spiritually dead bones before he saves us, what does that mean about our free will? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, this is where we need to think theologically rather than what just seems right in our heads. Uh, when the Bible says that we're a dead pile of very dry bones, what's it communicating? How much free will does dead, dry bones have? Do dead, dry bones willingly worship God? Out of their free will, do dead, dry bones worship God? Is there anything about dead, dry bones that says, man, they just, they're just going to rise up and worship God? In the New Testament, same thing. We're dead, dead in our trespasses, dead, 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 all throughout the New Testament. That's the spiritual picture that we're given of us apart from God. So I know a lot of us like to throw around, the, throw around the word free will. You just need to unpack. What do you mean by free will? Do you mean free will that any unbeliever can choose to whether follow God or not follow God at any point? Well, no. The Bible clearly says that only happens by being made alive by the Spirit of God. So we need to think very theologically here. Ephesians 2.5 says that by grace we've been saved and made alive. So it's only by God's grace do we come alive. And only by God's grace then can we worship God. So our, our, when, when wrestling with free will type questions, um, does your answer make more of man or more of God? And I would just say, always side on making more of God. This is the safe place to be. Um, does my answer point to uh, my free will or to God's greatness and sovereignty? Or to my sovereignty? Which, which one? And you know, just what we see, if, if God is all sovereign and he's all powerful and he's in control of all things... And I want, I want to lean towards him on all those answers. Now, does that mean I fully understand how it all works? Maybe not always, but I want to lean that way. Um, it's a good question. And I know we all wrestle with that question. I mean, we're, well, where does free will? Um, it's good. Uh, that's what I have today. So that's why we do questions. We do questions as a way for you to have an immediate response to any of your questions. Now, just because you ask them doesn't mean I answer them. Or sometimes I'll just say I have no idea. Um, or I think a couple weeks ago, I think I gave a bad answer. Then I came back the next week, and I hopefully gave a better answer. Um, I want to invite Chantley and Brian to come up real quick. Um, these guys are both leaving to go... Um, to be gone for about the month of March. They're going to be gone for the month of March, and they'll come back for the month of April, and they're leaving again for the month of May. Uh, and so I just wanted to pray uh, for them and also for their spouses. And I know Stephanie's downstairs, and that's probably bad, bad planning on our part. Um, um, is there anyone else that, that's not here right now? Is, is Nick gone? I was wondering when I saw you today, I was like, oh, did he leave? Um, so let's make sure we pray for, um, for Nick also. Nick is Heather's husband. Um, and and when, how long is he gone for? Till June. Um, is anyone else gone? I know uh, Daniel is gone. Yelichka, Allison's husband. So we're just going to take time. Your son, Shane. All right, just so you know, I'm going to try to keep these names in my head as we go through this. If I forget a name, it, Please don't come yell at me. Um, Shane, Nick, and Chantley and Brian. Is there anyone else that we know that's gone at this moment? Okay, I'm just going to take that, that that we don't know, so it's safe not to mention them. Um, but let's just pray. I want to pray for these guys as they'd go. They'd be bold as they're going to be taken out of a more comfortable environment and put into a different environment. They'd be bold there for the gospel. Um, and also for their, their spouses. 
and their kids who are here, that we as a church would love on them and give them peace of mind that they know that we're being loving towards them and, and, and encouraging them and helping them where needed, and that if they need something, they can call us as family at any point. Um, so uh, I'm just going to pray, and then if the team will go ahead and lead us in our last song. Father, I just thank you. Um, I thank you for Brian and Chantley, especially as they're just right here with me at this moment, but I also lift up Nick. Um, I lift up Shane, and I lift up Daniel, who they're all gone right now. And Father, I just pray that your presence be with them. Strengthen them. May they be bold in the gospel, Lord. May they know that even though they're away from family, that you are never away from them, and that you are in them, strengthening them. Father, may they feel your presence and your strength through these prayers now. And Father, I just pray, I pray especially for Brian and Chantley, that God, you would just take these men and allow them to be great, great light um, over the next few weeks that they're gone. And Lord, I pray for all the families um, who are here and their spouses are gone, that Lord, through your presence, that you would uh, minister to them, that you'd provide peace and comfort for the wives you would help with the rearing of children, where that is. And Lord, as a church, I pray that we become very proactive in loving these spouses so that the men who are gone would know that their families are being well taken care of by their family in Jesus. So Father, I just thank you. Um, I thank you for these men. I thank you for the men that are gone. I'll be with them and strengthen them. In your name, Jesus, amen.